1: In this episode of Idea City on the air, Mark Essig speaks about the history and future of pork. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Mark to the stage. They are
0: intelligent, they're self-sufficient, they're omnivorous, They're brilliantly efficient machines for converting almost any organic matter, and I mean any organic matter, into nourishing and delectable protein. And yet their flesh is banned in many cultures, and the animal is maligned as filthy and lazy. Our next speaker is Mark Essick, and he will come out here and talk about the importance of the unsung pig, and the tragedy of its modern treatment at the hands of humans.
2: Thank you, Moses. I'm honored to be here. I'm also going to make a a guess that in the 17 years of Idea City, I'm the first pig historian to be invited. So I'm going to take that as an honor, too. Um, about nine years ago, my wife and I and our infant son moved to Asheville, North Carolina, to the mountains of western North Carolina, and discovered that the town used to be along one of the biggest hog-droving routes in America in the, mid- in the mid-19th century. Hog-droving, you say? Well as many as 150,000 hogs used to come through town on the hoof every winter. And I have to say my first reaction to this was just sheer delight. Like who knew that a pig could walk that far? Who knew that it would go in the direction that you wanted it to go? Like we've all heard about cattle drives and cowboys, but what about pig boys? Who's ever heard of the Pig Boy movie? Um, So that was my first reaction, but Immediately, the story got a little more serious. Where were those pigs going? They started out on the north side of the Appalachians in Tennessee where they raised a lot of corn and fattened a lot of hogs but didn't have anybody to eat them. Down in the plantation south, they grew mostly cotton. They didn't grow food. They still needed to feed their enslaved African-American workers. You had supply on one side of the mountain, demand on the other. The only way to get from here to there was to, was to walk them over the mountains. So in an important sense, the global textile industry re, w- relied upon those pigs walking across the mountains. When you talk about food, uh, you're very quickly talking about power and politics and the way societies organize themselves and order themselves. That's true of all foods, I think, but it's particularly true of pigs. The story of pigs and our relationship with them is a story of love and loathing. Uh, so let's start with the love side of the equation. Pigs are very useful. A cow gestates for nine months, will give you a calf. A sheep gestates for five months, will give you maybe a couple of lambs. A pig gestates for less than four months, will give you eight, twelve, maybe a dozen piglets. A cow gives milk, a sheep gives wool, chickens give eggs, pigs give only one thing, and that's meat. That's the brutal fact that drives the plot of Charlotte's Web, of the movie Babe. Uh, it also inspired this poem I love by uh, Howard Nemirov, it's just two lines, It goes. it's called Bacon and Eggs, and it goes, the chicken contributes, but the pig gives his all. <laughs> Cured beef generally tastes like shoe leather, uh, pork, It only gets better with time. In the time before artificial refrigeration, which has been most of human history, cured pork offered a year-round source of protein. It also offered variety. There's an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa declares herself a vegetarian and Homer says, does this mean you're not gonna eat any meat at all? What about bacon? No. Ham? No. Pork chops? Dad, those all come from the same animal. Oh, sure, Lisa, Homer says, a wonderful, magical animal. Um, So I want to make the case that the pig is a magical animal for the reasons I've described, plus one more reason, which is the pig's omnivorousness. The pig will eat just about anything you or I will eat, plus a whole lot of things we would not dare to eat. The omnivorousness has been the pig's greatest virtue as well as its greatest sin. We all know the story of the three little pigs. One builds its house from straw, another from sticks, another from bricks. I'm gonna tell you the story about three different pigs, all domestic pigs. One lives in the city and eats garbage. One lives in the forest and eats acorns and other nuts. One lives on the farm and eats grain. It's a true story, it's not a fairy tale, but it has a moral that I'll get to at the end. So the pig is descended from the Eurasian wild boar, which lived all across the continents from Southeast Asia to England. It is thought to have become domestic on two occasions, once in China, but then the time we know more about happened in the Near East in what's now Turkey about 10,000 years ago. With goats with sheep and cattle, Uh, archaeologists think that they became domestic through the process of hunting. Early hunter-gatherers followed great herds across open territory, eventually started killing them selectively, and eventually hunting turned into herding. But that process doesn't work with pigs. They live in small groups, they live in forests or marshes. There's no way that process would work. So they think that something else happened. And what that something else was, that about 10,000 years ago or so, people first gathered into permanent settlements. And when people get together in groups, one of the things they're best at is producing a lot of garbage. Uh, When we're talking about these villages, it would have been burnt food, butchery scraps, spoiled grain. And once people started throwing that out towards the edges of town, the wild boar, started slinking into town to eat it. Not, not every boar was equally good at this. Uh, some were too bold and would scare the humans and get killed. Some were too timid so other pigs would get the food that they wanted. Fortune favored the ones who hit the middle ground. They were docile, gentle, yet not afraid of humans. And eventually, over hundreds, thousands of years, these wild boar evolved into what we know of as the domestic pig. So in other words, the very first pig was pig one of the story today, the garbage pig. And that worked out well for several thousand years. But then in about 3000 BC, you had the development of the first civilizations, first in Mesopotamia, and then in Egypt. And very early you get evidence that the wealthier people the ones who are the means to decide what they eat, who aren't just eating whatever is available, are rejecting pork. They are not sacrificing pigs to their gods, and they are not um, eating that pork in their own home. So what's the reason? It's complicated. It has to do partly with the types of religion that were being formed, um, but I also think it has a lot to do with what the pigs were eating. I'm gonna jump you from the Near East over to China for a moment. Uh, This is a sculpture that was dug up early in the 20th century. And at first, uh, from the Han Dynasty, it dates to about 200 AD in China, at first it was interpreted as a uh, combination pigsty with a grain elevator. You would drop the grain from on top down below. Later it was discovered that what this actually is is a combined pigsty outhouse. You'd climb up those steps, make your deposit, the pig would eat it and everybody would go about their business, eventually you would eat the pig. It's incredibly efficient, it is not terribly appetizing. Pigs had the same habit in the Near East, it played a role in why people decided to re- start rejecting pork. But it was, that was true across the entire region. By the time the Israelites got, got around to setting down their pork taboo, perhaps 700, 800 AD, that would have surprised nobody else in the region. It did, however, surprise their neighbors around the corner of the Mediterranean in Rome. Nobody, before or since has loved pork as much as the Romans loved pork. They sacrificed it to their gods, they ate it with relish. There's one surviving recipe collection from ancient Rome and it has about four recipes for beef, dozens for pork, including 17 recipes for suckling pig alone. Now, how do you explain that difference? Why so reviled in the Near East? Why so beloved in in Rome? It has to do with how the pigs were raised. In the Near East, it was a desert country, the only only place where pigs could live well, find enough food and water was in cities. The only pigs were garbage pigs. In Rome, they didn't need to eat garbage pigs. Uh, They had two other types of pigs, one, The rain fell in Italy, oak trees grew, acorns fell, pigs gobbled them up. They produced acorn-fed pork, which is some of the best in the world. Second, Rome was very rich. It collected grain from around the Mediterranean. A lot of people were starving at this time. Grain was expensive, but the Romans were so rich and a little bit greedy that they fed the grain to their pigs, created pig three, the grain-fed pig. Coming up after the break... Henry Ford once said that a visit to a pork packing plant inspired his assembly line for the automobile because you bring the work to the men rather than the men to the work.
1: Welcome back to Idea City on the air. You're listening to Mark Essig speak about the history and
2: future of pork. So... Thanks to the Romans, we have the basic pig lineup that will dominate the West. Garbage-fed, acorn-fed, grain-fed. It also had the basic set of attitudes towards pigs. Jews hated pigs, Romans loved pigs. Pretty much that set the terms that has defined our attitudes towards swine throughout, throughout history. Mostly it had to do whether you liked pigs or not depended upon where those pigs were raised. In the early Middle Ages, pigs lived mostly in the woods in Europe. They ate acorns like these that are being knocked down for them by swine herds. Uh, they lived well, they tasted great. Later in the Middle Ages, the forests of Europe were cut down, pigs retreated to the cities. They became scavenger pigs, they became reviled. Even St. Francis, Patron saint of animals, hated pigs. I could tell you some astonishing stories about how mean St. Francis was to pigs. (laughs) The forest pig, however, was not quite done because he had a whole new continent to conquer. They're native only to Eurasia, but on Columbus's second voyage, he took pigs with him. Those pigs... As soon as their sharp little hooves hit the jungle mud of the Caribbean islands, they started eating and breeding like crazy, provided the food that the Spaniards relied on as they conquered the New World. In North America, it was a similar story. There were pigs running free in the woods of Nova Scotia, as far north as Nova Scotia, by 1600. Colonists and pioneers throughout North American history, they turned pigs loose in the woods let them fend for themselves, rounded them up in the fall, slaughtered them, salted them, had a winter food supply. It's what allowed this great continent to be uh, settled as quickly as it was. Uh, Just to give you a sense of how important they were, I'll give you a list of names. Uh, There's that legendary story about Eskimos and snow. This'll give a similar idea of the importance of pigs. Pigs were called razorbacks, thistle diggers, prairie sharks, land pikes, sapling splitters, stump suckers. Elm peelers, pineywoods, rooters, and and this puzzles me, but I think it's because they were hard to get a hold of cucumber seeds. (laughs) Now, eventually, America's forests were cut down. Um, Generally, people turned to sheep or cattle at that point, but that didn't happen here because of corn. This was a new world crop combined with this old, old world pig, old world animal, created enormous crops of pigs. There were so many that meat packers in the Midwest invented a new way of handling them. Uh, It was an overhead rail that carried the pig along a line and it was actually one of the inventions of the assembly line. Henry Ford once said that a visit to a pork packing plant inspired his assembly line for the automobile because you bring the work to the men rather than the men to the work. This is the world we still live in. Pork, grain-fed, is the most common protein in the world. 36% of the meat eaten in the world is pork, almost all of it coming from uh, corn and soy-fed pork, and this is not a good thing. Um, Pigs these days live in these enormous metal sheds. They have their grain carried to them. Sows spend their time in a two-by-seven-foot stall called a gestation crate. Um, Temple Grandin has described it as spending your life living in an airliner seat. Farmers use antibiotics to produce uh, promote growth, which is leading to the development of superbugs. Slaughterhouse workers um, have developed illnesses and otherwise have... have, uh, Terrible working conditions. In Brazil, we're cutting down the rainforests in order to plant corn and take it to hogs that are living in these barns. Uh, Livestock production, it's a significant contributor to global warming. So we have a lot of cheap meat available at the grocery store, but it comes with a pretty high cost, most of it externalized on society as a whole. The story of The Three Little Pigs, the fairy tale, it's generally viewed as a tale of human progress. Uh, The great psychologist Bruno Bettelheim, he said, "Um, it's a story of man's progress in history from a lean-to shack to a wooden house, finally to a house of solid brick. The story I'm telling today uh, is sort of like The Three Little Pigs in reverse. Uh, We started with brick, we ended up with straw, and things are falling apart. The wolves at the door. Um, so the question is, what do we do at this point? Um, I think the best thing would probably be if everybody gave up eating meat. Um, it's, it's a good cheer, but I don't deserve your applause because uh, I've got a little too much Homer Simpson in me. And much of the world does too. So I think as a step in that direction, it would be good to move towards a different kind of pork. And I think there are some farmers who are laying the foundation for a new house, a house made of brick again. Um, There are farmers who are raising pigs in the woods, acorn-fed pork, the forest pigs again. Um, I met a woman at Yale University, a recent forestry grad, who's collecting acorns with a device that was invented for um, collecting golf balls on driving ranges. She uses that to collect acorns and then feeds them to pigs. But I'd say there's a bigger opportunity in bringing back the garbage pig. And I know that's a a tougher equation to look at, but let's talk about it. Farmers are already feeding pigs byproducts from dairies, breweries, frozen vegetable plants. You get some really interesting meat if you feed a pig on, say, sweet potato scraps uh, from from a sweet potato fry factory. When I go to my kid's school, I see tons of food in a trash can, and I think that's a lot of good pig, that's a lot of good pig feed going to waste. Let's, let's put a pig in the, in the playground and have a real edible schoolyard. Um, Secaucus, New Jersey, just across the river from New York, it was the pig capital of the East until the 1960s. And how was that so? Because the farmers collected vegetable scraps from New York City, took them back to New Jersey, fed them to their pigs, Fatten their pigs, and then sold the pigs back to restaurants in New York. So, there's no reason we can't do that again. Does it gross us out? Well, maybe a little. Do we have a little bit of ancient Near Easterner in us? Do we sympathize with the uh, the Jews of Leviticus who maybe didn't like this filthy meat? Well, yeah, we do. But we might have to get over it if we want this story of three pigs to have a happy ending. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mike. There's a book upstairs. You're well advised to read it. This is what Winston Churchill had to say on the matter Dogs look up to you, cats look down. The pig looks you in the eye and treats you like an equal.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening. To Idea City on the air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto, or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at Ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at Ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or youtube.com slash IdeaCity.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.